everything old is new again. America's entertainment pop culture talk show. It may well possess a rudimentary intelligence. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Felt a great disturbance in the force. Hello, I'm Mr. Ray. Come on, Mark, like a dog for me. Meet me. Where's the goodies? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. I bet you wouldn't have done anything like this if Mom and Dad were here. You filthy criminal. Excuse me while I whip this out. Go ahead. Make my day. Here are your hosts, Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Life's sweetest reward. Let it flow. There we go. Welcome to Everything Old is New Again. This is Douglas Viviani. I challenge you not to know what is what is the next line in that theme song. Yes, that's the Love Boat theme. Uh, question is, why am I playing it? This week, we're happy to spend some time with a special guest. In the 1960s, our guest was a special guest on such notable shows as Jack Benny, uh, Green Acres, The Flying Nun, Ben Casey, McHale's Navy, My Favorite Martian, Petticoat Junction, Bewitched, Mary Tyler Moore Show, Doris Day, Kojak, and that's just the name of a few of them. Uh, but you, uh, you would know him from his ingenious characterization, I would say. If you're a fan of Guess Smart... Of Siegfried, and if uh, if you are, I've just given away who it is. And thereafter, he was Dr. Adam Bricker on over 250 episodes, every episode of The Love Boat from 76 to 86. Guest starred on television shows and movies from the end of The Love Boat until now, and he's recently was in the incarnation of Hawaii Five O. Uh, and Superstore, if you saw that Valentine's Day episode, truly everything old is new again. Welcome, Bernie Coppell. Holy mackerel, why don't you save some of that for my memorial? <laughs> you, we could tape it. We could send it out uh, on the air, whatever you need. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> no, I've been so lucky over the years. I mean, I was just um, coming, out, coming out to Hollywood. I, I was misinformed my pal, Jim Drury, and we went to NYU together, and uh, he, is, he was such a handsome guy. He still is. Um, when we walked through the halls of, of NYU... Uh, all the girls said, they pointed to him and said, Hollywood, Hollywood. And, of course, he went right to Hollywood and started working in westerns. Uh, he worked with Elvis Presley. He worked in uh, Ride the High Country. And uh, I was in the Navy, and I came out. I had uh, sort of six months of nothing happening because I didn't know what my marketability was. That's something I always tell young people. You will find out what your marketability is. When you get out of school, if you're if you're uh, interested in, in theater, so he said one day he said Bernie, come on out to California. I got an agent for you. I said, oh my wow, this is so exciting because having an agent is like a magic thing. They give you entree. So I came out to California with my little eight by ten and my very skimpy resume, and I hand it to his agent, and the agent gives me a sort of. Um, a judgmental kind of a look, and he said, did Jim tell you I'd be your agent? How can I be your agent? I, I don't know what I can do with you. I, I, I don't know what you can do. I don't know what your marketability is. And he looks at me real hard. He says, you're not handsome enough to be a leading man. You're not ugly enough to be a heavy, he says. And he handed me back my papers, and I might have been destroyed at that point, but my attitude was, I jumped into the pool, not even realizing if there was any water in the pool. I just wanted it. I wanted it. So, um, and that began my whole, my whole world in California. I've been here since 1958. 
Wow. And I think uh, your experience of growing up in Brooklyn may have given you a little bit more of a backbone than you're letting on, you know, when uh, us New Yorkers uh, are faced with adversity. Uh, I think we might be at our best. I don't know that that kind of gets you a little motivated when that when that gentleman uh, said what he said to you. Well, it depends, uh, Douglas. It depends on who you are. It depends on what you're made of. It, de- it depends on what you might be running away from. I didn't want to be in my father's business. He was in the jewelry business. I detested the jewelry business because it was predicated on deceit. And he was a master salesman. He had that great talent uh, uh, using deceit to convince uh, customers that uh, what they held in their hand was the most valuable thing that they right. could ever conceive of, and um, he did very well. But at home, I, I guess it, part of it was was the the way that people were, the way that people men were at the time. It was a very uh, aggressive, authoritarian way that he had, and he pushed me. The only way I could make a living was to be in the jewelry business, and I didn't I didn't want to do that, and I. He was very rough on me, and I think he actually convinced me through word and action that I had no value. So uh, my only salvation was to rebel, and I rebelled. I rebelled, you might say, in in some kind of destructive ways. I drank too much as a kid. Uh, I did. I cut school, Erasmus Hall High School, and I'm just very pleased that, that my rebellion didn't destroy me. But I would not. I would not buckle under his assault so i wanted something and then a lovely uh, teacher at at um, erasmus hall uh, said uh, mr coppell are you chewing gum and uh, she sent me this note and and may we borrow your voice for verse choir well that began a something something that pleased me i got into verse choir then i got into the all uh, the the uh, the radio workshop at boys high and then I was lucky enough to get into the all city radio workshop at uh, at city hall and uh, that gave me something that I loved to do and that was very valuable to me because there was not there was not too much joy at home right and that we could see um the joy in what you do, and I think we've heard this from other guests that we've had. Very interesting stories from, say, Peter Weller and uh, and Terry Winter, who was the creator of, of Boardwalk Empire, and he won an Emmy for Sopranos. He was a lawyer um, and uh, and just decided, you know what, I don't want to do this, and got on a plane and flew out to California, was writing his scripts and submitted. In other words, followed uh, his bliss, followed what he thought he wanted to do, something at the very least that he enjoyed doing, and no matter what was going to come in his way, this is what he enjoyed doing, so he was going to do it, whether it was just ending up writing an off, uh, off, off-Broadway off play, so to speak, or being as successful as he is, you know, and uh, and I think that's what you're presenting to us as well, is you, you kind of got uh, the bug, or you found out something that you loved and heck of high water you were going to go uh, uh go try to try to achieve that uh, as a career i guess right yeah i talked to youngsters all the time and i said find what you love to do and pursue that you don't want to get stuck into some kind of a job i work well, sometimes you need a job just a survival job just to just to pay the bills but find what you love to do and pursue that and that's the only way you can be happy and pleased and gratified and then work and, is not work right i mean just so you know a little background on myself here uh i'm uh we'll say in my 50s and i just started this show two and a half years ago and uh, i'm a lawyer also and the reason 
reason why I did was because I denied myself what I thought I wanted to do for my career because everyone said, well, what are you talking about being on the radio? How do you do that? And there's no path to that. And you might as well, you know, you're a smart guy, whatever. Try to try to do something with your brain. That's, you know, there's a clear path. Go to school and do this, that, and that. And, uh, you know, I ended up being not as happy as I am now when I'm actually doing what I think, <laughs> I hope, that uh, that I'm uh, here to do, if that makes any sense. There you go. Now, I had teams, teams of, of relatives, uncles and aunts. Uh, they, they, they would assault me with, uh, what, are you, what are you doing to your parents? What are you doing to your parents? <laughs> and this is a very ironic uh, piece of advice. Take $5,000 and lose it, but find some way to make a living. Right. That, uh, if you lose the lose the five thousand dollars, that's uh, that's not uh, that's not successful <laughs> financially. But uh, they just kept coming at me, and I kept saying, "Forget about it. Forget about it. I'm doing what I love to do." And you do it well, Bernie Capel. It's great to have you on. Everything old is new again. We're visiting with Bernie Capel from the Love Boat from. Get Smart, and so many other shows that you know. Welcome, Bernie Capello. Come on back to Everything Old is New Again. Revisit the 1960s and 70s. You're listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Life's sweetest reward. Uh, welcome back to Everything Old is New Again. That, of course, is from The Love Boat. We're talking to the doctor, the good doctor himself, Bernie Capel. Let's go back in time a little bit, Bernie, before The Love Boat and speak a little bit about your time with Jack Benny. Okay, eventually, you started out with uh, with Jack Benny. I'm going to play just a smidge of a clip here with Jack Benny on the uh, Marx Brothers, uh, Gaucho Marx, uh, hello, Groucho Marx, You Bet Your Life, just to uh, bring us along if people can remember a smidge of, of this gentleman and, uh, and his impact. Just a couple seconds here. For many years, this bum has been lying about his age. Now, for $3,000... <laughs> Can you tell me how old he really is? Now, that's something, that's a clip of Groucho, and he's not even, uh, Jack Benny's not even talking, and he's getting laughs just from his persona, just from what he presented uh, beforehand and how successful he was. And I know you were on his show a couple of times. Uh, um, did you, um, I don't know, I know you say that he's a was a very uh, gregarious individual. What was he like to work with? This was probably a gentleman that was at the top of his game on television, on radio. There was, there was few... Uh, other more successful individuals than him when you were um, working with him? Jack Benny understood. He had an innate understanding of comedy, and he understood that reactions sometimes are more valuable comedically than what people are saying. And uh, he, was just, he was a prince of a man. And um, if, I can, if I can say something that he said to me, I, I, once I found out that I was going to be on the Jack Benny show, I said, oh, my God, this is going to be so. I, I had my, my heart in my mouth, and I said, I've I got to go over this a million times just to, just to make sure that I don't mess up. And he said to me after our first rehearsal, how come you know your lines so well, you son of a bitch? <laughs> And uh, I said, because working with you, Mr. Benny, 
uh, I, I just I, I, I couldn't bear the, the thought of, of, of messing up and he what he did at that point because the man had no actor ego he just poo-pooed it and sort of waved his hands like like oh come on don't it's not necessary to give me give me compliments and he was just amazing and what I did with him is my first five years was nothing but playing Latinos, very unusual for a nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn, because I could do the accent. Uh, I did the accent, okay, so I, so I, I had formed a routine um, about, uh, we had a director in, in, in this, um, I did a daytime soap called The Brighter Day in 1961. 1961, that was my first deal on television. And I'm playing a Latino. I'm playing a Mexican bad guy. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Trump. <laughs> um, and and um, the director was a very very flamboyant Herb Kenworth. So maybe in the middle of the night, I formed this thing sort of accidentally while I was sleeping. I said, Why don't I make a little routine with the personality of Herb Kenworth? very flamboyant and my Mexican character and he came out to be a funny shtick it was very funny so um, I, I, w I had a very aggressive agent at the time and uh, I had this I had this shtick happening and we were bust into offices and he said Bernie do the pilot and I did the pilot I mean, it made me very nervous but it, it, it was just a beginning of really being pushy so one day over at um, over at Universal, I'm in, in the casting director's office, Bob Edmondson, and he said, "Bernie, do the pilot." I do the pilot, and Edmondson says, "Stop," and he calls Fred DeCordova, who was producing the Jack Benny show, and he says, "Mr. DeCordova, I think I have I think I have your your uh, Rinaldi brother. Can, can I come?" He said, "Yeah, come on over." We ran over to Fred DeCordova's office. I did the routine with him, and zap, I got the Jack Benny show. Hmm. And it was a brilliant idea that I was a master uh, gunslinger. I had all kinds of medals for for shooting. And my brother, uh, he comes in in a ballet costume with a cape. And uh, it was supposed to be the, the new talent, talent show. And Mr. Benny said, well, what do you do? And I said, I am the least important part of this act. My brother, he's the fastest man in the world. I am going to shoot at him. And he, with his fantastic agility and grace, will dodge the bullets. So I ask for a drum roll, and there's a cutout of a human form behind my supposed brother. And I ask for a drum roll, I get the drum roll, and I shoot at him. Bang! And he does this jerky-herky movement, and evidently gets out of the way. And now there's a bullet hole, in the in the cutout of the human form, and Jack goes to it, sticks his finger in the hole, and he looks at the camera and says, "Amazing!" And then I do a second bullet, and then I empty my six guns in the direction of my brother. It's a little long routine, and eventually, I kill my brother, <laughs> and he falls. He stands up very, very. Um, correctly for a moment and then he falls down dead and Jack walks up to the supposed dead body and he looks right into the camera and says well 
I guess they just weren't ready for the big time, <laughs> which was a brilliant routine. And luckily, there was an on-set uh, cameraman who took photos of that routine, and I have that from 1961. And uh, every once in a while, I look at it and I say, God, what a wonderful, wonderful experience this was. And that got me going. Uh, I did a, I did a, a Latino character on uh, The Flying Nun, the favorite Martian, the, uh, as I mentioned, the Jack Benny show, the Danny Kaye show, Steve Allen show. So very odd, but, but strange. And my mother would look at these shows and she said, Bernard, I'm watching the shows and you're talking funny. I said, yes, Mom, I'm talking funny. But I tell you something that you might like. They're giving me checks for talking funny. <laughs> the checks are clearing. She said, oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> My little Brooklyn mother. And that and that was inspired basically from, I mean, we talk about doing what you love. Uh, you know, the, the creative juices are flowing when you've got nothing else on your mind. In other words, you're, do, you're in the moment because you're enjoying the moment. You're loving the moment. And we're enjoying the moment with uh, Bernie Capel. We're going to be right back uh, right after this to continue more. I've got a lot to explore with, uh, with this ingenious uh, gentleman. Bernie Capel, we'll be right back. And this is a good opportunity here to take a break just for a moment to promote not only Bernie Capel, who will be with us for the next two shows. Of course, Bernie is, uh, <laughs> or you may know him from so many different things, from Bewitched to Get Smart as Siegfried or The Doctor on The Love Boat. Recently, he was in an episode of uh, Superstore, which is on uh, these days, uh, a sitcom that, uh, that he made a memorable appearance on their Valentine's Day show. So we're going to revisit all of that with Bernie Capel soon. If you're enjoying listening to David Cohen and myself every week on Everything Old is New Again on this uh, station. Please, please, please do me a favor. Shoot them an email, shoot them a note, shoot them a telephone call. Let them know that you're enjoying Everything Old is New Again. Certainly, if you are listening on, let's say, the computer or a friend's area and you're not listening uh, in your hometown and you'd like to hear Everything Old is New Again, please do the same. Call your local talk station uh, and say, listen, take a look at Everything Old is New Again on their website, everythingoldisnewagain.biz. We've got all the old shows you can listen to. Uh, we've got it on our YouTube station, Everything Old is New Again radio. So we're having some fun. We'd like to bring along as many people as we can. So uh, please feel free to uh, you know to participate get involved shoot us a note at old new again at aol.com old new again at aol.com we'll be right back and everything old is new again Bernie Capel is that how loud that is wow you're listening to everything old is new again America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen hey set on set on Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Welcome back to Everything Old is New Again, K Sarah Sarah. That is, of course, uh, Doris Day, and we're in with uh, here with Bernie Capel talking about all the uh, experiences he's had with these these giants, and he's a giant himself. Uh, he's been in 128 shows, multiple multiple times, not to mention uh, all 250 episodes of The Love Boat. Uh, Bernie, welcome back to Everything Old is New Again, and um, just wanted to. 
talk to you a little bit about uh, dovetailing off of Jack Benny there and the comedic experience you had there, and you were on Doris Day quite a number of times, and some other shows we'll go through in a couple of minutes, but uh, uh, I just wanted to see, in general, uh, I see that the way you play comedy is more or less serious. You're, you're playing it as, even when you're playing Siegfried, which we'll get to, uh, you, you seem to be playing uh, these characters more or less serious, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, but you're not look. I mean, you tell me, are you looking for laughs as you're doing this, these characters, or are you playing it serious and let the laughs come, if that makes any well, sense? Well, it's, it's like I read the, um, the Neil Simon uh, book, and he said, okay, comedy... He said, if you're going to do, so you know, there's sketch comedy where you can do the Wagga Wagga stuff, you can do the silly faces and stuff, or there is a comedic comedic acting, and if you're going to do, like I'm referring to his play, uh, Rumors, that, that we did, and that he came to see, I mean, the master hmm. came to see our production of Rumors in California, and he, we were so nervous because he was very picky about uh, about his work uh, and I know that he had stopped a tour in Florida he didn't like the way somebody else's tour was going so we were very apprehensive is he gonna like us is he gonna like us so we were looking we were looking at his face during the through the through the um, the mirror of the um, of the stage manager and he was smiling and he was happy and at the end he sat for a picture with the cast, and he gave us an inscription. He said, this should have been my New York production. Wow. He loved it. And in, in his book, he said, when you're playing comedy, play the situation. Don't try to add making goofy faces and all of that, because that's tiresome, and that is counterproductive. So our director, Richard Klein, really made us toe the line with that kind of... We, we were all in the situation where uh, somebody apparently had shot himself on the, uh, on the second level and uh, police came and uh, we, were at, we were liable to lose... Our very wealthy people were liable to lose our positions, our money, and lose our freedom. So he says, play the situation. This is an anxiety situation. Anything bad can happen. So when you do your little improvisation, seeming improvisations, play it with the anxiety that you might be losing everything in your life. And that's how we played it. So I, it, that really made a tremendous impression on me. Don't screw around with the author's brilliant, brilliant work. And Neil Simon also insisted that you may not um, change words around because he measured every phrase. He measured the phrases. He put the words for maximum impact. And uh, what a great lesson in comedy. So when I did Siegfried, of course this guy is, he sounds very mean. He sounds very authoritative. And I had that great energy and impulse, and it just turned eyes. And I, as I was rehearsing, and I said, "Geez, I hope this is going to work out funny," because the guy seemed to be so serious. And uh, Don Adams was just so responsive to my work. I was very nervous because 
Not all great stars are happy with someone getting big laughs. Uh, I don't want to mention any names, so I won't, but I, I had a very scary experience with one star hmm. who felt that he would be the only one on the show getting laughs. Well, I got dumped out of that show, but with Don, Don was so responsive and supportive and loving uh, to me and to my character. And I said, is there anything I'm doing that bothering you at all? He said, no, you set me up. And I was so tickled that I felt at home with Don Adams. And Barbara Felton, who played 99, she and I just talked yesterday. We became great friends and remain great friends. She's a brilliant, independent woman, and I love to have uh, lunches with her. To have whenever I'm in New York, we we'll have lunch, we'll have dinner, and we just have a great time together. A brilliant, independent lady. Speaking of that, there, you also work with uh, Elizabeth Montgomery in Bewitched, uh, Mary Tyler Moore in the Dick Van Dyke Show, and we have a clip here to uh, to get into the Mary Tyler Moore experience you had. Uh, let's let's start with the the clip here. I know it was just one appearance, but uh, it was memorable on uh, on Mary Tyler Moore. So Lou Grant. Lou? In there, and Murray uh, Slaughter. Murray? Uh, this is Tony... Uh, Kramer. Kramer. Very nice, nice, to, to, meet. nice yeah. to meet you. <laughs> Just a little bit to get us rolling here. And that was an episode where you were going to date uh, date Mary, and and it turns out that because of uh, Ted Baxter's school that he was trying to promote, a broadcasting school, uh, she had to go along and, and, and teach a class eventually to one student, and uh, and you were the boyfriend, uh, or I should say the date, uh, kind of sticking around. So you were in all these scenes and watching the creation of of uh, of the magic there and you were part of the magic so um, what was it like to work with an ensemble like that with everyone had a little established roles and you're coming in to try to try to put your two cents in there okay let me tell you about mary tyler moore uh there, there was a show called richard diamond that preceded uh her on the on the dick van dyke show i did the dick van dyke show so uh on, on that show mary tyler moore had the most beautiful, well-formed, gorgeous legs of any human being, maybe with the exception of Juliet Prowse, who I did scenes in bed with and on um, Love But Anyway, uh, mm-hmm. Mary Tyler Moore. So uh, she just showed her legs on this. She was a secretary, and they had this, uh, this concept that it would, be, it would be so fascinating if her, the secretary, played by Mary Tyler Moore, would just show her legs. She crossed her legs. She uncrossed her legs. And she was the secretary of uh, of David Jensen. And then she gets the Mary Tyler Moore show. I mean, the the, the Dick Van Dyke show. Sorry, I must have Mary Tyler Moore on the brain. <laughs> so one day, and I'm playing a Mexican divorce lawyer on the uh, Dick Van Dyke show, and I'm just observing Carl Reiner and Mary Tyler Moore. And this day, she's wearing shorts. Oh, saints preserve us. <laughs> she's wearing shorts, and Carl gives her this little direction. It's a little piece of choreography where she has to go a little around a little table, and uh, she does it just the way he asked her to do it. And then she does it, and she looks at Carl like, did I do it right? And Carl said, Please do it again. And she said, Carl, I did it exactly the way you wanted me to do it. And Carl said, just, just do it again, just, just for me. Because she just was so, so lovely. And she, she was so lovely and, uh, 
and beautiful. And when I did the Dick Van Dyke show, I don't know if people remember this, but uh, but uh, Dick and, and Mary John Moore were having some kind of marriage arguments, and they were considering a, a divorce. So they come to Mexico, where me is uh, <laughs> I'm a Mexican divorce lawyer, and I tell them such complicated things about getting a divorce that they just decide, well, we'll just stay married. So they stayed married, but I had just great fun, and it was an education to work on the Dick Van Dyke Show. We're back with Bernie Capel right after this on Everything Old is New Again. Life's sweetest reward. All right, we're back uh, here for the podcasters to continue a little behind the scenes with Bernie Capel talking about Dick Van Dyke. Here we go. And I did three Dick Van Dyke shows. I did Diagnosis Murder, and then uh, there was one time with Dick... Uh, he was just sort of, he needed a rest. He was in Carefree, Arizona, relaxing, taking it easy. And uh, CBS always thought of Dick correctly, that Dick was television gold. Whatever you put him in is going to be successful. Well, they said, uh, oh, Dick. They said, Dick, we, we have a show for you. He says, guys, please, I'm relaxing here in Carefree, and uh, I'm not going to come back to So they offered him more money. He said, guys, please understand, I'm, I need my rest. So they put their heads together and they said, Dick, what if we build you a studio in Carefree, Arizona? And he said, okay. <laughs> so they built him a studio in Carefree, Arizona. And what he had to do is, I played an Arizona Highway Patrol, and uh, it was an illustration. Uh, Dick had this brilliant drunk routine. And that, that gave this 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 gave him a, him a chance to do his drunk routine, and I and I was playing very straight, and I had eight eight little uh, shot glasses of booze, and I was illustrating that the more you drink, the less comprehension and less control you have over your driving. Well, we did the show, and it was he just killed with that drunk routine. So after the show, he puts his hand around my shoulder. You know, where you're up after a show, you're up and your your adrenaline is flowing. He says, "He says, Bernie, you want to come with me and have a drink?" And I said, "Oh, but now I'm fantasizing, going to some very exclusive place in Carefree, having a drink with this great, great star." And I said, "Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, let's let's do it. This will be great." So on our way, and I'm I'm figuring this is on on our way to his car. He stops at the prop room. And I figured, well, he just has to pick up something. The prop room was his destination. <laughs> so we go to the prop room with bare beams. We sat on boxes and got plotsed. <laughs> Dick Van Dyke and Bernie Coppell. How about that? That's, uh, a, that's a picture. You, you learned so quite a bit then as well, picture. right? Now, now, now get this. <laughs> now, two months later, Harvey Corman calls me. And he had just directed another Dick Van Dyke show in Carefree. He says, Bernie, you'll never guess what just happened to me. I said, I know what happened to you. I said, he said, well, how would you know? I said, because the same thing happened to me. You got plots in the in the proper room. <laughs> His own private uh, stash there, right? Um, yeah. So um, <laughs> it's just just tremendous, tremendous fun. Uh, and, that's, and he was. I was going to say, Dick, Dick, Dick was also in the. Uh, in the audience when Neil Simon came to see uh, Rumors and we have a picture of, of Dick and uh, and Doc Simon 
and um, Jack Klugman was also there that night. Uh, yeah. So it was just one of those heavenly, heavenly nights. And and uh, just classic uh, names and classic people and work that you've been in. It, it goes on and on. We'll be back. I just wanted to just tie that in with the Mary Tyler Moore show just for a second. In that, in in that, just for the listeners, uh, Murray Slaughter, of course, was Gavin McLeod, and uh, and of course he turned out to be Captain Stooping on the Love Boat, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so we'll come back and we'll continue with uh, Bernie Capel right after this. And everything old is new again. Now, back to America's Entertainment Pop Culture Talk Show. Everything old is new again with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Oh, yes, I remember now. Missed it by that much. And I'm glad you're not missing our show here on Everything Old is New Again with Bernie Capel, who, of course, was uh, Siegfried in, uh, on, on Get Smart and quite a number of uh, uh, performances on television uh, throughout the, the years, the last, boy, I'm going to say 50 years. Um, but I wanted to go back. We were talking about and started last section off about Doris Day. We ended up talking about strong women in, in comedy and, and, uh, and Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore. But um, how was your experience with Doris Day? You were with her uh, uh, quite a bit on... Uh, on that show well I go back with Doris Day to the thrill of it all the thrill of it all I played a um, a, a floor director uh, on, a, on a television show and she uh, she is at a party where she's um, she's talking about the, 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 the wonderful aspect of happy soap her kids love happy soap and at that at that party is the guy who owns the company of Happy Soap, and he's so impressed with her um, praising his his product, he makes her the new spokesperson. Now she allegedly has never done any any television, and and so she's she appears to be amateurish. She holds the soap bar upside down, and she fumpers a little bit. And I'm I'm giving her a little a little heartburn by saying you know hold it turn around turn around and and I said talk faster and she's a little annoyed with me so when it got to be her show the Doris Day show um, I said gee whiz how is she going to relate to me is she going to be re- remembering that I was uh, maybe not that pleasant with it I was, she'll probably remember that it was just you know just acting so the first thing I did with her. Coming back to my my Latino roots, I played a a Cuban uh, guy who um, hijacked her plane. Okay, so now she's hijacked. She's in my power, and we had very very nice comedic scenes. Her as Doris Day and myself as this <laughs> this Mexican guy. So then, uh, about a year later. I come back as Louis Pellucci, Louis Pellucci, who owned the building. We had a little trattoria on the ground floor, and she lived above, uh, and, 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 uh, Kay Ballard was my wife, two excitable Italians. I know you have difficulty relating to that, but that's <laughs> how it is. Anyway, lovely, funny scenes, and the last one I did, because they really couldn't make up their mind what their premise would be on the show. The last one I did, was I played her old uncle. Now I was still about uh, 10 years or so younger than she is, but I'm a character actor, okay? 
And this was, I played Uncle August von Kappelhoff. Uh, now, von Kappelhoff was her real name. It, it was, she was not born with uh, Doris Day as a name. So we had lovely, lovely, lovely scenes, memorable scenes, certainly in, in my mind and her mind. So a number of years go by, we hadn't talked, and I'd heard in the news that her only son, Terry Melcher, had passed away from cancer. And I said, oh, gee, that's just so awful. So my phone rings. A female disguised voice comes on. Hello, Uncle August. <laughs> and I said, Clara Bixby? Billy DeWolf had given her that name of Clara Bixby. <laughs> so we talked. Now, this is around Christmas time, 10 years ago or so. Her beautiful singing is making people joyful all over the world. And the human being, the Doris Day human being, was so unhappy and depressed. So we talked for over an hour. And now we talk every couple of months, and I'm involved in her uh, pet foundation. She's crazy about dogs. Now, on her set, she had about 17 dogs. Very unusual, you might say. Now, the dogs knew once the bell went on, the bell meant, okay, get ready to shoot. They couldn't make any noise. But once the two bells rang, which means all clear, they could bark and frolic and wag their tails and do make noises. So it was a very happy set. And this this is this is a note that is so astonishing. She starts out as a singer. She becomes a top ten singer. Then she evolves into a top ten movie stars. And she worked in the movies with Jimmy Cagney, Jimmy Stewart, Frank Sinatra, Clark Gable. On and on, Rock Hudson, on and on and on. And I asked her, I said, no one in the world has ever done what you have done to go from a top ten singer to a top ten movie star. I said, did you, did you go to acting classes? How did you do that? No one in the world has ever done that. So she pauses and says, I don't know, it was just fun. <laughs> there you go. And, and that was the inspiration we talked about uh, at the beginning of our show, too. You know, again, she was in her zone. She was doing what she loved, apparently. It was fun. And when you're doing something you love, I guess you go over the, you know, you'll you'll do so much extra. You'll you'll go past that 9 to 5 o'clock if it's a 9 to 5 job. You know, yeah, whatever your, your, your energy comes out of the love, the enjoyment, the gratification that, that you're getting, uh, that you're getting from it. And, you know, she started out. As a dancer, she went to dance class and dance class, and then she had an accident, a car accident, that just crushed her right leg. And during her recuperation time, she started singing, listening to the radio, and that's how she became Doris Day, this world-class singer. Wow, this triple So uh, yeah. sometimes accidents have a, a happy ending. That's yeah, everything for a reason sometimes, you know. Um, and, and speaking of that, Doris Day had, you know, can you think of her, if you think of one thing, you can think of que sera, sera, and that's not fair because she did so many things. But that is sort of a catchphrase of hers. We at Everything Old is New Again, uh, we went a, a couple of years back into an evaluation of the best catchphrases of all time. So I'm going to ask uh, Bernie Capel to, uh, to just listen to a few from the 60s and 70s, and just to refresh his recollection of some, and we'll talk about catchphrases in general, and then maybe we'll determine what might be the best catchphrase of all time right after this. I'm going to 
go to the moon? Do you want to go to the moon? Bang, zoom. I see nothing. I know nothing. What am I, a doctor or a moon shuttle conductor? I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. Keep saying that. Are you a doctor, aren't you? I don't know. Now, of course, I had to put in the Star Trek reference there. Every show we do a Star Trek reference, Bernie, if you're not familiar. Just before we discuss it, I've got one more set, just a quick one to refresh our all memories, a little bit of some catchphrases from back in the day. Let's see if we can... Uh, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha! Hey! Get out, Elizabeth! I'm coming to join you, honey! And it all belongs to Kid Dynamite! There's a few. No, so in 50s, 60s, and 70s, we were looking at this, and certainly Seinfeld had quite a few, but it seems to have died off a little bit, but I, I think back in the 60s and 70s, you, catch me if I'm wrong here, there were a lot of catchphrases that shows used, and my question would be, because uh, um, we're going to play one of yours shortly, uh, uh, where, where do you think the... In the pantheon, do, do catchphrases, are they necessary? Were they a time of the past? What, what, do you have any thoughts about why they're even used? Well, I think that the catchphrases just came out of, uh, came out of the script. You know, you go along and, uh, and you respond to certain things and uh, some things just come out and they sound extra special. Uh, for example, um, when I had Don and Barbara in the submarine, we were in the submarine, we were chasing the Sixth Fleet, and uh, we were trying to get into position to give them a torpedo, and they were dropping depth bombs on us. So the depth bombs were making the, the guys nervous. So uh, one gets to be fairly close to the submarine, and a big bang, and it shakes up the submarine. And the guys are getting nervous. And I said, you will not panic until I give the order to panic. So they get very nervous. And another depth bomb comes so very close. And I say, prepare to panic. <laughs> so that was one uh, catchphrase. But uh, Don had really the, most of them. Thank you, Bernie Capel, for your input on our catchphrase inquiry on everything old is new again. We'll be back next week to continue with Bernie Capel. 